Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with a very special guest, Arnold Kling, economist, former web entrepreneur, and author. Arnold, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Arnold, I'm excited to chat with you about, first, your personal moonshot, which is to replace neoclassical economics with a, a new type of economics, uh, an economics that, that sees the old economics as, as history, and one that is uh, focused on the new internet economy and, and moving forward. And before getting into this, first, I want to first ask, why choose this personal moonshot? You are, you are a successful web entrepreneur. Why not become a venture capitalist or do something else? Why go back to, to your field of, of economics and, and choose this personal moonshot out of all the personal moonshots you could, you could choose? I think being a, an entrepreneur is probably too stressful, especially at my age. I, I, you know, as I look back at it, probably the most socially useful thing I could have done after I sold my business would have been to you know try to start another business. But uh, just remembering how stressed out I was, I can I can forgive myself for not doing that. <laughs> so, uh, but why not a venture capitalist? Those are pretty cushy uh, cushy gigs, as they say. <laughs> I actually tried a little bit of angel investing and had horrible experiences at that, and just have no interest in it. I think part of the problem for me doing that is that uh, you know I I'm just not good at letting my sort of money be managed by other people's decisions, you know, in, in, in a kind of a venture setting. I, I, I want to be in charge. I don't want to just sit there and as an investor, it just didn't work for me emotionally. Yeah. I know you're not a huge Bitcoin, uh, Bitcoin fan. We'll, we'll get, we'll get to that later. So let's talk about your moonshot. So the way I sort of see you describing uh, economics 1.0 is, uh, and the flaws with it is that it sees the world via labor and capital that it operates in a world of scarcity um, and that you want to introduce, uh, you want to operate in a world of abundance or that's what the world is today. Uh, you want to introduce intangible factors into the economy. You want to think of the economy as having hardware, you know, labor, land, and then software, you know, uh, recipes and best practices and culture and institutions. Add to, or added to that, what does it look like for, for your personal moonshot to, to be realized? Well, that's a, that's a, a challenging way to answer the question. I, I think I'll just... I think the the shortest way I can answer it is that I think what's wrong with mainstream or neoclassical economics is that it's too grounded in materialism and not enough in culture. So an economics that recognizes cultural factors and puts them, you know, in the forefront rather than trying to hide them in the background and say, well, controlling for culture, then we have, have these things going on. I first was alerted to the materialism when I, I was reading uh, many years ago, George Gilder's book, Microcosm, from the late 1980s about the personal computer. And he makes a strong point that the insides of, a, of the chip, you know, the materials are, is sand. I mean, sand is not inherently valuable. So the value all comes from the ideas and the human ingenuity that goes into it. So, you know, that's there's a hint that just focusing on material factors causes problems. And I, I, if you want, I can get into some of the problems that I think it causes. Yeah, please do. 
Well, for one thing, you know, it's very common for economics textbooks, or at least it was, uh, you know, when when I was uh, 30, 40 years ago, to say the economic problem is the problem of allocating scarce resources under competing ends. And that's wrong. I mean, that's just, no, that's the problem of the military command of the Allies in World War II. You know, we have so many ships to allocate, and we'll put some in the Atlantic theater and some in the Pacific theater. But outside of that context, this the resource allocation from kind of a central planner's point of view is just not the way, right way to look at an economy. The economy, the, the main problem for the economy isn't allocating scarce resources. For one thing, what constitutes a resource depends on the cultural context. You know, a few hundred years ago, crude oil was not a resource. Uh, the value of crude oil depends on the cultural context. For that matter, the value of gold depends on the c- cultural context. This resource allocation problem is not the right way to look at it. I, I think a better way to start is that the problem is, you know, how do we coordinate uh, and specialize so that a society of strangers can help each other and and enhance each other's welfare and produce for each other. How, um, that's a, a question. Another question is how can we handle innovation? How can we make sure that enough experiments are tried, that those experiments are evaluated, and that the better results survive and the bad results don't? Th- 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 those are the, the real economic issues. Right. And, and what are the other big ones that if you could wave a wand and change anything about what the sort of elite uh, you know, economists and, and schools today teach and, and believe, what, what are the other big changes you would? Uh, okay. Well, the, you know, this, they, I think that they mostly tie back to this problem of materialism. Materialism, again, leads to something that you alluded to earlier of looking at incomes as factor shares. So there's labor income and capital income. But really, that makes no sense. If, you know, it it treats workers as this this homogeneous, unskilled workers, but the the classifications of labor and capital income just don't make sense. So if, if you have a medical doctor in the uh, their salary in the national statistics will be counted as labor income. But that makes it sound like a medical doctor would earn the same thing whether they were being, you know, seeing patients or whether they were working as ditch diggers, and and that's just not true. It's so there's a huge element of what's called human capital in a doctor's income, and then if a uh, a business founder's income gets recorded in the national statistics, it'll be called capital income, as if what the business founder was c- contributing in exchange for the equity in the business was the machinery and office space for the building. But that's not what business founders contribute. They contribute their ingenuity, their creativity, their ideas, their organizational ability, their energy. And just to call that capital uh, as if they were contributing machines and so on is just—it's just silly, you know. So that's another thing that you you just you would throw out. And I guess the third one is the the whole notion of the causal factors of inflation, unemployment. So this is macroeconomics just being like government deficits or monetary policy. I mean, I have this 
very unusual view, which is that the central bank is the Fed is just another bank. The, the Fed has no more control over the economy than Citibank does. They're both large banks. Uh, you know, people will come back. Oh, but the Fed can print money. Actually, it can't. If you're talking about printing currency, that happens at the Bureau of Engraving under the Treasury. Uh, it's not the Fed. Um, but getting back to this material, there's a whole line of argument there. Obviously, most people are not going to agree with me. Everyone you know, worships the Fed as this great, all-powerful thing. So it's a long argument to, to convince people otherwise. But I think where it comes from, it's so frustrating, is that economists really want to have a material basis for value. The notion that cultural context determines value is just very hard for people them to swallow. And so they come along and they can they can take the relative value of apples and eggs, let's say, and they say, well, that's going to be based on material conditions, even though it's not, depends on culture. But they say, fine, we, we, we can tell you about the relative value of apples and eggs. But now how do we determine the nominal value, the, the value in dollar terms. You know, so if you know, a dozen eggs exchanged for one apple, fine, but what will the price be? Will it be $1, $10, whatever? And say, well, what we need is the money supply to, to determine that sort of absolute price level. And you know, if you've got this materialist, you know, we're going to be able to determine value based on material things. You say, well, it's the supply of money that's going to determine the price level. But in fact, what constitutes money and what people choose to set as prices is very much a cultural phenomenon. It's, it's habits. It's sort of, if we walked in tomorrow and everybody had amnesia about what prices were yesterday and what they, what kind of payments mechanisms they were using yesterday, we would have no way of, of resolving anything. What enables us to, to know when we're going into a store what to expect in terms of prices is what we saw yesterday and what would we expect based on what we saw yesterday. So it's all, uh, it's very much a cultural situation, and same with what we use for payments. You know, 40 years ago, nobody, you know, people didn't use credit cards for uh, very many payments. They certainly didn't use Apple Pay or PayPal. So what constitutes money and how prices are set are in, just embedded in people's habits and, you know, sort of kind of everyday decisions. They're not a materialistic outcome of the supply of money. When you look at the, the differences between what you believe and what you know, neoclassical uh, economists believe, and you look back at the last, I don't know, 50 years or so, I think you credited Samuelson with po- popularizing some, some of these views. What are the biggest problems you, you think this outdated view is, has, has brought that you would hope to? I'd say number one is overconfidence about the economist as policy entrepreneur. So the economist says, oh, I can identify market failure and therefore I can, you know, propose policies that will overcome this. And implicit in that is a lot of overconfidence about how the political process works because the political process doesn't, doesn't intervene in markets in the way that, in the way that would, would begin to alleviate market failure even if you really did identify it. Uh, obviously, a lot of overconfidence about macroeconomics and the ability to control the level of inflation, unemployment, and 
just an inability to educate the public about how markets work, what functions they really perform, and their ability to coordinate economic activity. There's a strong use of models and mathematical models in economics. And when they're presented to undergraduates, they really oversimplify things. So when they teach trade, they teach comparative advantage of, you know, two goods. And it just makes it sound like economic organization is really simple. They're just, you know, you trade wine for cloth. It's really simple. And so it, it doesn't enable people to appreciate the complexity of their society. And so they come out of, even as economics majors, with just an intuition that, well, socialism ought to work just, just as well. They don't, they don't sense the complexity of the large-scale society. And, and where, where is this overconfidence and simplification manifested most uh, problematically uh, in terms of like what policies would you have done differently or reversed significantly? Is it, for example, the stimulus of 2008 or what, what are some, some examples? Oh, gosh. I'd say regulation in general. You know, we we have what's called the administrative state. We hand over to regulators uh, powers that they have the legislative, executive, and judiciary power all in once, and they make mistakes. and And the mistakes can be very prominent in uh, in financial regulation, for example. And I think just not correcting people's natural intuition to hate capitalism. Capitalism is now a boo word among young people, and these are educated young people. You know, there's that congresswoman AOC who's famously an economics major and who's all for socialism. That I think that typifies what's going on, and it's because economists don't really d- delve into how and how markets really work. Again, they, they look at, oh, the market is, is, is solving this resource allocation problem. No, the market is solving a complexity coordination problem. It is not solving a resource allocation problem. Correct com- sort of complexity coordination and filtering innovation. You know, I want to talk about why you think capitalism isn't uh, more popular, given how good growth growth has been, and what what can be done to make it more popular. And I think it's more than just the way it's it's taught. I, I wonder if it's all is is you know you talk you have these, these posts about how socialism is you know similar to how we relate in families, and thus we think that it should be able to scale out. But also, I feel like the social you know stall people died with the word Stalin on their lips. People aren't dying with free markets on their lips. I, I feel like we can do a much better job of rebranding or, or popularizing. Uh, the benefits of economic growth. What are your thoughts well, there? Well, I, I think you, we have to, first of all, get people to accept imperfection in the social order, that there are some you know, fundamental problems that, that the social order, you know, trade-offs that the social order can't completely eliminate. But uh, there are three arguments against capitalism that I think generically amount to every argument that's ever been made against capitalism. And these three arguments are all correct to some degree. So one argument against capitalism is that it elevates the values of material well-being above other values. And you know, think of that in terms of a kind of a status game where we have different 
people that we could allocate status points to. So we could allocate it to the the brave warrior, to the athlete, to the artist, to the intellectual, to the politician, to the person who you know who gives of themselves, to so the altruist. There are all, all sorts of people you could allocate status to. And status is more like a zero-sum game. If you you know give status points to merchants and entrepreneurs and businessmen, then that leaves you less status points to allocate to the others. So that's a sense in which it's really true that in a capitalist system, you're going to be devaluing other people relative to something without capitalism. You know, and, some, and Deirdre McCloskey would point out that's absolutely necessary for a capitalist system. If you make entrepreneurs, merchants, moneylenders, you know, low-status people, which is what uh, what, what people did historically, like they said, you know, people who are, you know, high class cannot participate in this. It's only like, you know, dirty Jews who can be money lenders, things like that. So if you, if you make the, you know, the, the main capitalist people, low status people, you will not have capitalism, you will not have economic growth. So there's a sense in which it's absolutely true that a ca- in a capitalist system, Material values are going to have relatively high status compared to a non-capitalist system. But if you get if you change that, then you you get rid of the benefits of the capitalist system. Another okay, so that's argument one is that it, it elevates you know gross material values. The second argument is that it, capitalism destroys people's livelihoods, and that's the destruction part of creative destruction. We don't have very many people who are the village blacksmith isn't around anymore. The telephone switchboard operator isn't anymore. And so people constantly can talk about the jobs that have been lost, the jobs that are being lost, and the jobs that will be lost in the future. And they can blame capitalism, and they're absolutely right. But you know that represents progress. Most of the jobs that have been eliminated over the last 200 years are awful jobs. I mean, you know, we should have fewer coal miners, fewer people working in dangerous blast furnaces, fewer people working as farmhands getting injured. We're fortunate overall that jobs have been lost, but at the time, any one of these jobs being lost, you know, can really destroy a person's life. So again, it's a valid argument against capitalism, but by the same token, you can't you can't solve that problem without getting rid of a lot of the benefits of capitalism. And the third argument against capitalism is that it undermines community values. So if you think of a community, the governing principle is we care about one another. And that works really well in a small, simple society. So you're on a camping trip, you know, you don't need an organization chart. You don't need a market. You just say, okay, you know, you pitch the tent. We'll work on starting the fire. You know, you wash the clothes, whatever. We, you, you can, in that setting, you don't need the instruments of markets and capitalism. You could just, people care about each other. You know, and another thing about a community is, you know, you, you can talk about sharing tasks, so you can say, you know, we'll take turns cleaning the bathroom. Well, that you can say that if you, if you're like a, 
uh, kids in a bunk at summer camp. You know, we'll take turns cleaning the bathroom. In a 500-person office building, no, that, that, that it just isn't going to work that way. So this gets back to the point that you alluded to, that people, their sense of community, and a sense of community is very important to humans, uh, is all derived from a simple setting in a small-scale setting. So probably less than 150 people and without doing complex tasks. So you can, you know, do, you can pitch a tent and you can start a fire in, on a camping trip with a few people. You can't design and manufacture an iPhone with just a few people on a camping trip. So a, lo- a large complex society requires these components of capitalism, these things that allows strangers to interact with each other and benefit from each other. You don't get this sense of community out of these, out of these, you know, complex markets, big corporations and all these other points of capitalism. So again, the argument is valid that you're not promoting a sense of community. That the problem once again is if you get rid, if you get rid of the elements that take away the sense of community, then you get rid of all the material well-being and you have to go back to being a hunter-gatherer. Anyway, that, that would be the line I would give. Is I'd, I would say that the arguments against capitalism, that it elevates values other than artistic values or honor or altruism, it, 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 it elevates these other values or it elevates material values relative to those. It undermines a sense of community, and it does create create loss of livelihood. It does have all those problems. The problem is if you take away the ability of capitalism to create those problems, you take away the ability to have all the benefits of a complex society that we've come to appreciate. We take you know Tyler Collins' sort of moral arguments for for economic growth. Are there ways to have solutions to some of those problems that still promote the uh, economic growth. And, and it seems that the, the values one and the community one are, are related in some sense. And I, I think I recall Adam Smith writing about uh, the need for a strong a moral fabric, which I think used to be you know, religion. What are your thoughts as we think about ways to, to solve these problems or, or even address them in, in ways that also create economic growth? Or don't take away that. I, I I think it's it's maybe sort of the the biggest challenge we face, and I don't necessarily claim to have solutions. Um, you know, somehow we need to obtain the values of community, belonging, the sense of that that you know you care for me and I care for you, and we need to you know retain our support for you know artistic values and other values alongside or along with the uh, the instruments of capitalism I, just, it, I don't know that there's a a simple solution I think that that's something people are going to argue about and debate for quite a while one hypothesis is that some people say that markets took away you know by making people less reliant on each other and you know less dependent in general um, that more of the needs met it took away some of the older forms of community building, but that uh, the internet will help uh, bolster n- new forms. So in the past, it happened around dependency. Now it's around shared interests 
or it's around, you know, markets replacing some of the social, fu- you know, functions of, of, you know, Airbnb for, for childcare or, or homeschool or other areas where we can now, you know, look at new ways. You know, one way to think of it is sort of in a pre-capitalist economy, there is a lot of personal dependence. So you, you're in a hunter-gatherer you know, tribe or in a small village, and everyone that you depend on, you know personally. In a market capitalist economy, there's impersonal dependence and there's less personal dependence. So, um, you know, when I was growing up, people hired their neighbor's kids to mow their lawns. Now they hire strangers to mow their lawns. There's just not, you know, as we become more specialized and more capitalist, a lot of these community bonds just disappear. I think that's kind of inevitable, and I think that's something we have to struggle to compensate for. You know, whether the internet can be a vehicle for creating these community bonds, I don't know. I mean, some there are some people who say that that that's absolutely the wrong way to go. I mean, I guess David Brooks comes to mind. It's like you know, the more attached you are to your you know internet gaming community or you know some other community that you relate to on the computer, the less attached you will be to your neighbors. You might, you know, your neighbors might be complete strangers to you. And that, you know, that represents a challenge. Maybe we have to kind of fight against that and compensate for that. Yeah. I tend to think there's something of a tyranny of the proximity, a tyranny of proximity or something where there's, there's sort of these value judgments placed on people who are just closer to us, but may not share our interests or share our values. And I think in the past decade, the internet has helped us meet them online and perhaps the next day it'll help meet the people that we most connect with offline too. Or that's, that's, that, that would be the utopian. <laughs> for, yeah. Or, or that yeah. we're so good that it'll feel like it's, <laughs> it feel like it's all. Yeah. yeah. I, well, who, who knows what will happen? Uh, you know, at, at some point, you know, when uh, sort of augmented reality and, you know, becomes real. And of course it's a real challenge. You know, we we may completely recover the sense of closeness that we what we've may have lost. I mean, just you know, to give imagine living in you know a small town thirty years ago, a thriving small town, but you know, so people know each other. There's just there's this intuition of how they you know who needs to be helped and how you can help them versus now. You know, you take those people and you move them to the city and they live in a giant apartment building and they don't even know each other. You know, will we recover some of that closeness uh, with kind of an, an augmented reality world? I don't know. And I also heard this, this one critique of money I found interesting. It was saying that money is to social value roughly as a cave painting is to vision, which is, you know, radical simplification. And we've moved past cave paintings to photography movies and, and VR and we need to do the same for money in terms of how we imagine social value. What do you think of that? Uh, a little too airy fairy for me. <laughs> Sounds about right. <laughs> um, the, another critique you didn't mention, um, but that some people bring up is that it's, it's not sustainable that uh, in you know, Jeffrey West book scale argues that, you know, long-term uh, sustainable economic growth is, is an oxymoron uh, that eventually the, the, you know, we always, pick up pace uh, to match sort of our, our needs, but that eventually there will become some sort of, I don't know what the argument is exactly, some sort of singularity or, or some sort of, you know, resource constraint. What are your thoughts there? I think that kind of re- sort of constraint is so far off in the future, it's not worth worrying about. I mean, you know, 
you know, I mean, there are some there are constraints like you know you, you can't use all the energy in the universe and think you know so these really you know long term out there constraints. In the meantime, in the real world, I don't think you know sort of constraints like that are going to uh, are going to be what hit. Is that is that how you feel about uh, environmental concerns broadly, or, or what would be your proposed solutions for? And the environment would. You know, if sustainability means leaving things exactly how you found them, which seems to be what what some people want to have for sustainability, uh, then you have to go back to being hunter gatherers, and as yes, hunter gatherers, sort of make sure you don't gather and hunt too much. So, that's, so that that's that isn't going to happen. We are going to change the world. We are going to combine molecules into other molecules, and yeah, you know, and that's. That's just how we are. Um, but, you know, the, the total amount of molecules and the total, you know, the total materials are, are pretty much constant. You know, there, there is that uh, constancy, of, you know, the law of conservation of matter. So I, I think, you know, environmentalists have to, you know, can't simplify things and say, oh, it's not sustainable or we're going to run out of resources or something, they have to come up with some more specific scenarios about how certain activities, you know, certain chemical activities or economic activities are going to cause, you know, are going to raise costs in the future that in ways that aren't being accounted for now. So, you know, if you believe a climate change story, then that would be a legitimate case of building up costs in the future without paying attention to them now and that would that could cause a potential large problem yeah zooming uh zooming out a bit in 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 your book uh unchecked you in the last part of the book you talk about you know the problem of government not having the same trial and error feedback loops or accountability you know measures that the market has propose uh potential solutions for that for ways for there to be competition within governance and and some of the uh, some of these sort of you know backbone and this is you know over a decade ago but some of the you know intellectual uh, infrastructure that's inspired things like charter cities and, and new cities today which are starting to become more of a reality we might be still you know a few years out but I say that as sort of a segue to as plenty of money is is segueing that way we, we need to sort of think about first principles the role of of government where government should step in where it should not step in you know the intersection between public and and private so. How do you think about the the role of uh, role of government, where it should step in, where it is stepping today, and where it should get out? Which I assume you'd say is most of it. Or <laughs> well, I, okay, so I think any kind of start from scratch approach uh, has a lot of disadvantages. So that's you know, charter cities has a lot of disadvantages. Seasteading has a lot of disadvantages. Where I think. Uh, you know, sort of, you know, saying we're going to strip government down to nothing and then start it all over again. I, I, I just think it's very unlikely. We, we, it's more like we have to start from where we are and kind of grope our way in, in the direction we want to go. So I would say we have to take as given all the functions that government performs now and say, how could we experiment with <laughs> reallocating those functions? And as I best recall, suggesting in the book is sort of dividing our government's 
into smaller units, allowing people to secede in certain ways, trying to unbundle government services. So I have to go to the same government for public schools, for garbage collection, for courts, and so on. If we could somehow unbundle that gradually and sort of say, all right, well, now you can have some choice about garbage collection, even, you know, you're, and you know, things like that. So, so you know, sort of gradually privatizing services, moving the unit of decision away from Washington, you know, down to a state level, and then from a state level down to a, a county level, city level, and then even lower than that, and allowing people to opt out of services that they don't want and choose alternatives. So, um, to me, that's the more the more plausible path for reducing the concentration of of power in government. It isn't to just sort of say, "All right, we're going to just start a new charter city," because there are just so many. You know, this this kind of a conservative Chesterton fence argument. There are so many elements of cities that work that we don't appreciate. That if you go out and try to start a new one you're going to end up with, you know, two or three advantages, which were the things that you thought about designing, and then, you know, a thousand disadvantages, which are things that you didn't think about, which are already embedded in existing cities. What, if anything, do you think should be strongly done at the federal level, done in a big way, for example, military, or what should we be doing there, and, and any others that come to mind? Well, that's a good question. I I, I think, in, if, I would say ideally, it's just the, uh, you know, kind of a final court. And I guess sort of ensuring interstate commerce isn't impeded by what the states do. You know, that whatever amendment that is to the Constitution, you know, that component of the Constitution that says, you know, the federal government regulates interstate commerce. So you don't have states enacting tariffs against one another. I think the interstate commerce clause ought to uh, keep states from doing some of the licensing requirements they do in particular it's I, I don't understand why a somebody who's passed a nursing licensing exam in Maryland should have to pass a different exam if they move to a different state to me that's a violation of the kind of the, the principle of open interstate commerce that was in the Constitution do you think military should be privatized put it this way uh, I do subscribe to the view that civilian control over the military is a necessary condition to have you know, any kind of open society. So however you operate the military, you've got to have civilian control over it. We'll get to crypto later, but one, one of the biggest things that the rise of Bitcoin has brought is a awareness of government's control of the money supply and printing money, as we talked about earlier. Do you think government should get out of the printing money business? <laughs> No, uh, that's something, again, I, I think people have the ability to evolve plenty of payment mechanisms. And so I don't, I don't worry about the fact that, you know, the government has the power to print money. I, I, what I worry about in that context is the government just going crazy with deficit spending and finding itself with a, a need to cover deficits by printing money. That is, you know, to do what the 
modern monetary theory people say it it can and perhaps should do is just you know print money like crazy to pay for things and i think that gets what gets you to the Weimar Republic or uh, Zimbabwe or these other cases of horrible hyperinflation that just wipe out people's, you know, that wipe out the financial system. And, and to that end, how is it going to play out in terms of our deficit, in terms of our debt? Do you think a sovereign debt crisis where people lose confidence in our ability to pay their debts is possible? I think it's possible. I don't think it's in the near-term future. I think what the effect, the corrosive effect it's going to have is the political political contest between various interest groups is going to get a lot tougher. So if you go back to the, you know, the situation in, you know, around 1970, let's say 75 when the debt to GDP ratio is really low and we haven't overcommitted ourselves to make social security payments and Medicare payments to, to people who are going to live much longer than, than, than was contemplated when those laws were passed. Uh, so if you go back to then and, and we have a decent fiscal situation, then when there's a little bit of strife in the political process, hey, you just throw some more money at it. You know, you, you, you pay people off. But now we're at a point where the issue isn't, you know, well, what kind of goodies can the government can have? hand out it's it's we've really come down to a point where it's what are we going to have to take away you know what who is not going to get the social security that they've been promised you know is it going to be is it going to start 10 years from now is it going to start 20 years from now you know the longer you wait the harder it's going to be and at what point are we going to default on debt in some way, you know, not pay bondholders the full amount or inflate away the value of bonds. Those questions are going to come up in the next 15 to 20 years unless there's some, you know, huge economic growth dividend that makes the deficit seem small. Right now, governments are significantly involved, among other things, in agriculture, education, banking, transportation, housing. Should it you know, wholesale, get out of any, any of those or, 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 you know, virtually get out, get out of any of those or how should its relationship form? If it were up to me, it would gradually back out of those rules. So in each, you know, in each of those areas, you know, I would design a plan that over, you know, a five, 10, 15 year period, uh, its involvement phases out. But of course that's not, you know, I'm, that's me being the uh, fantasy despot. You know, that's, the political reality is that's not the way it's going to take place. Within that world, let's just talk about finance for a second. Do you worry about systemic risk in terms of, you know, everything being interconnected? You know, in 2008, we saw that interconnected markets can create systemic risk. Is, is there a world where, you know, markets eat everything that it, it creates even more of potential for systemic risk? I think the the financial sector is in some ways symbiotic and similar to government in that both depend a lot on a um, kind of a, you could call it a consensual, consensual hallucination. You know, so if people stop believing that government is legitimate, then government can't govern, right? People won't, won't obey. If people stop believing that financial institutions know what they're doing, then financial institutions will collapse because people won't, you know, they won't make their, they, they'll make, they'll run on the banks. And so you have this situation where, so that, that financial institutions and government both share this very 
you know, compelling need to, for people to believe in them and to support them uh, and to have faith in them. They also find that they can help each other with this. That is, banks can help people have faith in government because by, by banks buying government debt and sort of allocating credit in a way that the government gets it. Uh, and the government can support the banks by making it appear that the banks are never going to fail, you know, deposit insurance or too big to fail and so on. So you, you have this relationship. It's, it's necessary, I think, for, to have a good society for people to have some faith in government and some faith in the financial system. But uh, what we saw, I think, in 2008 is kind of what happened when people had too much faith and you know the banks, in some sense, couldn't live up to it. You know, when, when there's that much faith in mortgage-backed securities, the mortgage-backed securities ultimately are going to be backed by junk, and then the, and then the thing collapses. So it's it's an intriguing problem of finding a balance between people having too little faith, in which case you know banking doesn't take place and, and all sorts of things don't take place as a result of that or having too much faith. And then these people make uh, very unwise decisions and things collapse. So maintain, so I would say that the problem of dealing with finance is the problem of somehow maintaining a balance between not having too much faith and not having too little faith. I would add that I, I feel more comfortable with a financial system that's somehow easily repaired after a few institutions collapse than trying to have a financial system that where that couldn't possibly collapse. I, I just think that's that's an oxymoron. And any any financial system can have inst- major institutions collapse. I think that's inevitable. So my line is try to make the financial system easy to fix. Don't try to make it impossible to break. You can't do that. Yeah. And is, is that basically your, your solution to, you know, trying to better align knowledge and power, which is to decentralize decision-making onto the edges uh, to as local as, as possible. And is the, is the counter to that, that then it, it will lead to more perhaps externalities where people aren't thinking about the entire system. They're just thinking like, and not everything is sort of priced in or, or taken into account. And the idea of public goods versus private goods, yeah. How, how do you think? Okay, so yeah, it's a kind of a profound question of sort of where do you want to assign accountability relative to knowledge? And I guess if my belief is that knowledge is dispersed, and if you centralize accountability, you don't automatically centralize knowledge. You know, so if if you uh, centralize accountability or centralize power. You're creating ability where you create errors. I, I, I wrote recently about the about how corporations are ma- large corporations are managed versus how small businesses are managed. So if you have a restaurant, you know, a small business, and you're the you're the owner, you basically see directly everything that goes on. You see how the facility is maintained. You see how the food is cooked. You see how the customers react. Everything is visible. Uh, if you're the CEO of a large corporation. That sort of information is filtered. You get a fraction of that kind of information. You don't see every customer interaction. You don't see what every employee is doing. You get management reports. You get scraps of information. And then you you have to operate with a theory of the business. So it's a completely different problem. And I think 
you know, the, it relates to sort of James Scott's notion of seeing like a state, you know, a state tries to, you know, the, the rulers of a, of a large state try to try to make their populations legible by taking censuses and gathering statistics and so on. But they're never as perfectly legible as if you were sit, sitting there looking at, if you in a, in a small group looking at everybody. It's inevitable that people operating with power over large numbers of other people or large systems, they're operating with imperfect information, with, with uh, information shortage. And so my main point about that is just be very careful about giving people that much power when they have that little information to go by. And so that's why I you know, think that in general, government would work better if it were more decentralized and smaller. And I think there's evidence for that if we compare, you know, the quality of government of, you know, small countries versus large countries. There are some small countries that are poorly governed, but I think most of the best governed countries nowadays are, are, are relatively small. They, the, you know, it doesn't matter what index you use, the human development index or constructed for left-wing people or uh, you know economic freedom index con- you know constructed for right-wing purposes you know a lot of the same countries show up near the top of that of those indices uh, you know places like Norway or Singapore and so on and they're all they're all mid-size you know, they're all on the small side you know 10 million people or so for the United States is almost an outlier as you know almost every other country that has a hundred million people or more is has really horribly governed. It's kind of amazing that we survive as well as we do. And how do you think about you know, going back to you know, this concept of, of governance? You know, there's some problems that are global problems, right? Nuclear proliferation, uh, you potentially the rise of artificial intelligence, climate change, and and some of these you know require global coordination. How do you think about? That as we become even even more interconnected, the need for for not maybe a global government. <laughs> yeah, right. The best results we've had on things like that have come from standard setting bodies. So the classic would be the Internet Engineering Task Forces. I mean, the you know, the, you know, creating the protocols that enable the the internet to work and sort of managing those protocols and and you know allowing for the evolution of, of those protocols. Uh, you know, it's, it's an international problem. Uh, it's solved by groups of engineers who are basically doing it, you know, kind of voluntarily and, and, and agreeing to standards. I think that's been the best. Now, there there are certain problems that probably aren't going to be resolved that way. I mean, climate change comes to mind. I don't think you can sort of you know, come up with voluntary standards for that. So, I mean, you know, if you ask me, you know, what sort of governance system would work to deal with climate change, I'd say, you know, pray that climate change isn't really a problem. I mean, I just, I I don't think, I I can't come up with a, a, a governance system that can work where you can't, you, you can't, address problems with simple like coming up with voluntary standards that kind of please every you know that more or less please everybody you know this is a bit of an out there question it, it like the idea of dispersing decision making uh to the edges and and um to, to people who have the most knowledge 
is not just, you know, more ethical in some sense, but it is also, it's been easier to make because it's more effective that the central planner can't have all the information, but is there a world uh, in which you think about thing, you know, that hasn't played up to take place on the internet, right? You think about Google and Facebook, they know me better than I know me. And and soon they'll be able to make better decisions for me than I know myself. Is there a world in which, you know, all data goes online, artificial intelligence gets a lot better, machine learning gets a lot better, that the central planner will have better information uh, and be able to make decisions? Uh, I've wondered about that because, um, you know, yeah. So one other way to put it is, is we get to the point where seeing like a state actually works better than, you know, seeing like an individual. That's a plausible scenario. And, you know, maybe in that kind of world, you know, sort of China will be more effective than the U.S. because China will be very willing to use state power to kind of, you know, override people's individual choices. In the U.S., we won't have that tradition. We will resist it. You know? I think we were, you know, we've been operating under the assumption for a long time that capitalism, democracy is the things to, uh, is, is, the, is the way to go <laughs> and the way everyone should yeah. go. And it's, yeah. May not be clear. Yeah, no. The the question is whether you know, sort of the, the you know, let's assume China has enough information to have you know, sort of a you know, a very very totalitarian control. You know, the assumption that we have based on you know, our experience in the twentieth century is that that will lead to failure. But you could ask, maybe it will lead to success. You know. You, I sort of I would root against I would root against it, but I wouldn't, you know, bet every last dollar against it. Right. I, I want to go back to when we were talking about the government and, and the money supply. Uh, how, do, how do you think about monetary policy? Should continue striving for two percent inflation uh, every year and, and and broader? You know, if, if you were de- uh, uh, you know despot, uh, what, what what should be the role of the Fed? In what extent should it exist, if at all? My view is, you know, monetary policy, as we can look at it, is sort of a smokescreen. The big effect of government and financial markets is to allocate credit, especially to itself. And that's what governments traditionally use central banks for. That's my reading of Neil Ferguson's uh, The Cash Nexus, is that you know, governments want to allocate credit, especially to themselves. And the Fed is an instrument for that. And so if what you want is, you know, to not have the government be so involved in allocating credit, then you just want to tone down the Fed, mostly in terms of the Fed's ability to regulate. You, you want, you don't want the Fed to be, have such a heavy hand in regulating and telling banks how they can operate and so on. That makes sense. The, you know, Peter Thiel's big concern has been that we have, an economic slowdown. And we've had an economic slowdown since, since the 1970s. And it, it's due to a technological slowdown. Uh, but, you know, culturally, practically, what is your sort of reading of what's happened since uh, 1970? And is that your biggest concern too? Or, or how do you think about that? I doubt that that's true. I, I think it very, could very easily be a statistical artifact. I think it's, it's a very hard thing to judge. Our statistical system was developed first for an agricultural system, you know, agricultural economy, where we're counting bushels. And then we adapted it to the industrial economy, where we're counting, you know, steel girders. Now we're trying to adapt it to this 
economy where so much of the of the value is comes from intangible things and i just uh, i just don't think we we know that and when when we try to so we, we kind of fall back on kind of anecdotal impressions well you know this town and this demographic group is doing really badly you know this group is doing well i mean you, you have this classic fight about whether about infl- is inflation bad or, or real incomes going up or down and so people who say well look at what look at how the cost of a refrigerator has gone down how the cost of a computer has gone down how you know with you know with an iphone you can you, you have sort of what would have been thousands of dollars some people even say a million dollars worth of appliances as of you know 30 years ago uh, and so they say well the standard of living is going way up and then other people look Look at you know healthcare and education, and just the you know the steady increase in prices and that, and say, oh well, you know, standard of living is really falling. Anyway, but I I I tend to take the more uh, upbeat view. I, I I'm I I think our standard of living has actually been going up fantastically, but you can't refute the the people who believe who believe otherwise. You know, like Robert Gordon and and Tyler Cowen and and. And yeah, you say is I guess you take the market Jason argument, which is you know consumer surplus is just is just not identified in the numbers, but things are better. Yeah, than that. yeah. I just I just don't think we have we we have the data capabilities to deal with the contemporary economy. I mean, we we don't even come close. And so you know, people, the government puts out numbers, and people you know run with those numbers, you know, and they you know take the third derivative of the you know ratio of uh, output to number of workers and it's just uh, I, I i mean it's just such garbage but you know it's sort of like he, kenneth arrow had this line i guess when world war ii he was involved in some statistical weather forecasting and the the people who were doing it wrote a memo saying the uh you know we're not we're, we're not good at these you know like 10-day forecasts or whatever yeah we're, we're no better than random uh, so we should stop doing these forecasts. And the memo came back down to them. Yes, the general knows that these go, these forecasts are worthless, but we've got to keep you know. But but we did we got to keep using them. You know that that's kind of the way I feel about people who are using the uh, the national statistics to try to draw inferences about you know the the rate of productivity growth it's just you know that they've decided that even though the numbers are worthless they're going to run with them anyway and this brings me back to your personal moonshot which is you know what happens if we win let's say we overthrow neoclassical economics and you know implement economics 2.0 or whatever you want to call it what what changes you know, and one example of a change could be instead of looking at gdp we look at what you propose occupational satisfaction yeah well you've you've read very deeply yeah i Behavior is based on sub on subjective things. You know, costs are ultimately subjective. The, the the materialistic view is like, oh, we we can we can tell you what something costs based on something objective, and this gets back to you know that all these examples of like, well, you know, what is the value of crude oil? Well, it depends on the context. What is the cost of the components of a personal computer? Well, the silicon costs nothing. It's all the ingenuity that goes into it. So inevitably, 
you know, we can pretend that we're doing objective things like measuring bushels, tons of steel, and so on. But in the end, we're we're stuck with things that are subjective, and that and you know that creates challenges. So, having said all that, I I've proposed that we simply ask people how you know what gives them occupational satisfaction or we we try to relate their occupational satisfaction to some objective conditions like safety of the occupation you know opportunities for autonomy money compensation so on and then track those components over time and say well you know this you know, if someone in 1980 had been given the job situation that someone in 2020 has, uh, they would have their their happiness would have increased by you know 10 percent or 20 percent or whatever. You know, that, I don't have a um, you know 100 percent confidence that 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 can be implemented and that if it were implemented, it would be of great value. But I was just throwing ideas out there to try to get people to stop just trying to rely on things like GDP, which is ultimately attempt to you know, add up bushels of wheat and steel girders and satisfaction from Facebook and somehow throw that together into a, uh, well, it isn't even satisfaction from Facebook. All they're going to add up is the advertising spending on Facebook. So, I mean, the, the, the indices of economic performance are just not adequate, are just so bad that you know i all i can propose are things that I, that i can immediately see would be problematic but at least they they'd offer some prayer of maybe being a little better than what we've got right and i, I think tyler and and many others will you know pick up graphs of you know showing gdp correlation with you know things we really care about health you know education are those just sort of coincidences or or not not coincidences but, but misleading in some way well, oh, there's definitely a correlation. I mean, look, there's a you know, you can met, you can look at the U.S. GDP per capita versus North Korea's GDP per capita, and correlate that with all sorts of things that you know sh- that would verify that we're better off than North Korea. But that's that's very crude. When you're trying to talk about a productivity slowdown, you know, you're really trying to make a highly refined use of those numbers and you know to put it another way you know if if our measure of gdp per capita is off by an order of magnitude we still know that we're better off than north korea that is if you you know if if you divide our gdp by 10 we still per capita by 10 we still know we're better off than north korea but if we're off by you know not order of magnitude, but like ten percent in our GDP. Then all these stories about a productivity slowdown are baloney. I'm curious how you think about uh, inequality, uh, income inequality, wealth inequality, and I'll sort of phrase it this way: Is it true that the the rich have been getting richer faster than the poor have been getting richer? Uh, and is it true that despite the poor being richer than ever, that leads to you know uh, unhappiness? And if that's true, should we do anything about it? And if so, what should we do? Okay, well, so my my initial take is uh, I'm always glad when inequality is is the prominent issue. 
because that means that all our other problems are, are, are not prominent. So if there's high unemployment, people don't talk about inequality. If there's high inflation, people don't talk about inequality. You know, if there's wars or natural disasters, people don't talk about inequality. So when inequality rises to the top of concerns, I feel great. I feel like, wow, we've really, you know, we're in great shape. You know, that, and and I'm not even being, you know, totally facetious there. I think, I think, I think it's a great concern to have in terms of dealing with it. I think that there's a lot of corruption embedded in in the kind of anti-poverty kind of policy nexus, you know, so I think the least corrupted, least corrupt and the least corrupting approach for dealing with it is, you know, something like a universal basic income, which I think is a policy that's very much misunderstood by most people. I think uh, the way I would say it is, you know, people say, Oh, you can't give people money for doing nothing. I say, you know, or, you know, if you give people money, they won't, they won't have incentive to work. I'd say if you want to take away people's incentive to work, put in the system we have now where you fall off these cliffs uh, in terms of getting benefits if you, you know, if you, if you work at all. Uh, whereas with a universal basic income, you can make it so that people, you know, as they work more, they, they, they earn more and they, they keep more. So anyway, that's a, that's a whole other another topic you prefer that uh basic income to something like basic jobs or basic work yeah i just i think that the you know the more you try to condition benefits on things and offer you know okay you're you're, you can only use this for food or you can only use this for medical care the more you end up just corrupting things i think you know the you know an example of corruption is like if if you're providing if if your government's providing for people's medical care and saying you know this money can only be used for medical care like medicaid money can only be used for medical care then what you get is everybody trying to lobby to get their service approved you know so a yoga teacher says oh what what i'm doing is therapy uh so you know so you it just just, it's corrupting you know another view uh, or another topic that's touched on some of the topics we brought earlier is sort of this this debate in the last few years that's you know become more popular with trump about about nationalism versus globalism and I, i think the central topics there have been around immigration trade and and some extent terror and uh, just for, foreign policy. And I think the the elite view, and we'll get to Martin Gurry in, in a bit, is that the elitist view is that the nationalists are just totally wrong. But there's some, some you know, elite, like Eric Weinstein will say that, no, immigration is actually a bit more complicated than than uh, the elites feel. It's not just, you know, open borders for everybody or, or that trade's a little bit more complicated than, than the elites feel. It's not just, you know, we don't, we don't even have free trade um, currently and the deals are currently unfair and Trump's and China's actually not, not, not bad. And that terror is obviously more complicated too. What are your views on that? Well, you know, a lot of it's sort of, uh, you know, outside my comfort zone in terms of talking about. I'll, I'll start with trade. Again, I'll go back to my position on global governance, which is ideally uh, you have sort of private task forces working to resolve things. So, you know, with the disagreements about China, to the extent possible, if you could have, you know, representatives of tech companies in the U.S. and China talking to each other and trying to come up with standards for 
on these tough issues like intellectual property and so on. I think that's better than trying to come up with, you know, with treaties that have to get through the Senate and so on. I, I just think that getting the people who are most closely involved and knowledgeable about it directly negotiating uh, would be my preference and negotiating without the pressure of, you know, you know, threats of use of force. I mean, when the internet, when the internet engineering task forces to get together, I mean, there aren't people standing behind them with guns, you know? So it's, I, I think that's just a more preferable way to go about doing that. Uh, as for other issues of, you know, you know, national borders and so on, I think, you know, that's just, a little bit too far outside my area of, of expertise for me to say I have a, a you know a useful thing. I mean, I can I can see why people some people want borders, and I can see why some people think that borders are a uh, real infringement on on people's freedom. So Brian Kaplan's been very vocal about op- the need for open borders, and are you in his camp or unclear? I doubt that I'm I'm in his camp. I think. The proposal that I've made is that get rid of all the rules regarding immigration and just switch to a pricing system. Just say, okay, if you can come up with ten thousand dollars, you can come in and and you know, and and immigrate or you know pick you know pick whatever number. You know that's an imperfect system, but <laughs> it's obvious we have an imperfect system now. You know the the question that's before us is really whether we we have the will and the means to enforce any system. So I think the, the first, you know, the first question to ask about any immigration system that you have is, can you really stick by it? And, and do you have the will and the means to enforce it? And anyway, so I, w- I would hope that the pricing system would be something that you could come up with, but that, that could be workable and that, that, you know, that, that, you know, potential immigrants would accept, but the, you can easily come up with arguments why why that is as unworkable as anything else. Totally. I want to go back to the, the what was going to happen to jobs. And, and there's this argument that everyone's going to become sort of gig economy workers and entrepreneurs in the future. And the argument sort of goes like this. Automation is going to kill all jobs uh, that are, except the ones that, that require creativity. But most people see something as, see jobs as something you learn once and then can repeatedly do for the rest of your life. And it's scary for people that they're going to have to reinvent themselves all, all the time, that they won't have security. Our schools aren't built for it. Society isn't yet built for it. We might be wired that way in, in some ways, but it'd be a huge shift. Do you think that's going to happen? I don't think it's going to happen quickly. You know, somebody made the point to me uh, you know, a week or two ago that you know human drivers are actually really, really good. <laughs> I mean, there are certainly lots of bad driving drivers and bad driving that goes on but you know human drivers are amazingly good and it's it's really quite challenging to get a an autonomous vehicle to drive as well as a human being and i think there are all sorts of you know that plays out throughout all sorts of these occupations that are supposedly threatened is that what we're going to find is that humans are not quite as dumb as they seem I certainly buy into the notion that the computers are getting smarter faster than the humans are. But even that is something that, you know, 
humans can sort of deal with. I mean, on something like chess, I understand, you know, humans have been, you know, outmoded in chess and, and I saw, saw that coming, expected that to happen, wasn't surprised by it. Same with go, but I think there, there's just plenty of occupations, even just little, even just like, you know, assembling components in a, in a factory it's going to take a long, longer than than people are implicitly assuming for uh, humans to be replaced. I'm curious to talk about Martin Gurry, and 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 you you seem compelled by him for a few reasons. And there's sort of this, these broader questions around: is truth what you know democratic, or is truth what yeah. most people think, or is it uh, you know people who who know best, and and who determines what truth is? And that's playing out in, in many aspects. What do you? What was your take on that? And and what do you think Martin Gurry really understands? Okay, what if I would describe the the theme of Gurry's work is that with new media, the public is more aware than they used to be of the imperfections in the elites, in the elites that you know the the top newspapers, maybe the top universities the top uh, political leaders. So the, and the, the public is more aware of their flaws and the public has more tools at its disposal for protesting and for organi- and for organizing against the elites. And so you can throw together things like the, you know, the everything from the Arab spring to the yellow vest movement in France and put that into that framework. And so I think, and I think that's that's a useful framework. But Guri also makes the point that the public inherently does not have a a way of implementing a co- or even formulating a coherent positive agenda. You know, it it can protest, but it can't implement. So Brexit is a great example of that playing out. Right, the the public in Britain was able to vote for Brexit and essentially protest. Britain's having to uh, have open borders with other European countries and to, which I think was the the main real source of protesting and protest having Europe make, you know, Brussels make rules for for Britain. But then when it came to actually implementing Brexit, no one's been able to figure out how to do it. And, you know, I think that's, that's the classic, that that would be a classic Martin Gurry, story of yeah well the you know the public now knows enough to to protest the elites but the public doesn't have the ability to you know implement an agenda and so we're in this kind of um, you know in this kind of dynamic going back to sort of who has the knowledge in one of your books you 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 outline sort of four different archetypes you know the hamiltonian archetype which believes that the bankers have the knowledge or the Wilson archetype, which is that the it's in our institutions or the Jeffersonians is that it's, it's in academia or the Jacksonians, which is it's in the, it's in the, you know, the populists. And that you, and you, uh, this is a long time ago, but you, you argue yeah. as a, as a Wilsonian, uh, are, are you still a Wilsonian? Has that changed at all? And if so, like, what have we learned about institutions and, and culture and the intersection there? And what would you, what would you say on that topic? Uh, my current thinking on that is uh, I just I look at it a, a simpler trade-off between you know sort of taking your cues from tradition or taking your cues from 
reason, re- reasoning something out and saying, okay, from first principles, this ought to happen. And, you know, so that, you know, the, a conservative, you know, classic conservative would say, you know, there's a lot of knowledge that's embedded in tradition, traditional folkways, traditional religions, traditional habits. And if you try to use your own individual reason or the, the mimetic reasons of the moment, you're going to make mistakes that you, you hadn't anticipated. I, I think the conservative view has a lot of merit. So, but if, on the other hand, it's obviously true that you can reason your way to, be, to better ways of doing things than just traditional ways of doing things. And I think the, but the, I think the way to deal with that is to have, you know, to allow sort of cultural evolution to operate to not try to impose the most rational system from on high. But that's, you have to be very delicate and careful about, about even saying that because, you know, the engineer, Internet Engineering Task Forces are, at some, you know, when it comes down to it, they're imposing a set of protocols on the rest of us who don't know, who wouldn't know how to assemble, an, you know, an Internet. So inevitably there are going to be, you know, some elites who are building systems that the rest of us have to live with. I mean, I, I don't think we're, we're going to design the internet by, you know, popular democracy. Yeah, it is interesting. I mean, I, 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 there are these uh, sort of fringe, but very intelligent, powerful groups within San Francisco um, or Silicon Valley ecosystem. One of them, if I understand correctly, is known as the neo-reactionary movement. And that is Sorry, I didn't, the neo-what movement? Neo-reactionary. Um, okay, sure. Which is basically yeah, trying to replace government with tech CEOs. Is my my my, my yeah right? <laughs> okay, I, I could be incorrect. And then there's another group that says no, there's just too much baggage. Let's just exit. <laughs> Let's exit. Yeah. Start, start new cities. Start new countries. Yeah, I think I think all I think all those those views lean too much to the rationalist side. So you know, if 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 you put at one pole, you know. What say? What is the most reasonable, rational way of solving problems? And the other poll is, you know, what can we take from tradition, and you know, and starting from tradition, you know, evolve towards solutions. I'm way close to that traditional poll. You know, let, 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 let's not throw everything out. Let's just let's start from where we are and try to move in a better direction. Makes sense. Thinking, you know, another we talk about centralization versus decentralization. You know, on a micro level, another way to think about it is is a generalization versus, versus specialist. Uh, you know, being generalist versus being a specialist. And, and you mentioned you're reading range right now, which is all, all, all the rage. And um, what's your take on on the book and, and that question? Well, I haven't finished it completely. I I think at some po- points in the book, he he does emphasize that that both specialization and generalization have their virtues in you know specialization tending to have virtues in certain contexts and generalization having virtues in other contexts and that's kind of what i would expect i think there there are other points in the book where i'm a little worried that he kind of over gets over enthusiastic about about non-specialization so but um that's my take so far You've also written a book about politics, the three languages of, of, of politics. And th- there's this argument that I'm, I'm curious to hear your response to, which basically says something along the lines of that 
technologists and Silicon Valley used to be aligned with, with the left traditionally defined under the era of Obama and that it was supporting you know, things like the Arab Spring, very you know, uh, democratic principles, uh, but that at some point it became too powerful and threatened uh, some of the main left institutions, namely uh, journalism with BuzzFeed, et cetera, Facebook, et cetera, Harvard, uh, you know, edu- education um, with things like the TLO Fellowship and maybe even you know, elements of, of entertainment and became the, the enemy of, of the left and has, has now gone more right in some, in some ways, maybe in some secret ways. And think you see the rise of things like intellectual dark web. Do, do you, does that resonate with you? Where, where would you push back on that? I guess it, 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 I, I don't jump up and down and say, oh, well, that, that sounds right. It, it maybe doesn't sound completely wrong, but um, you know, the, the current rage seems to be to, you know, it's time to regulate tech, and I'm, I'm very much against that. I think, you know, if you think things are bad now, wait, wait till you have, you know, the government step in. I think that the government will only reduce the freedom and privacy that people have now uh it will you know just the mechanisms by which government will regulate tech will sort of make us you know more like china whatever the intent whatever your goal i mean you can claim that your goal is to you know have a more competitive system to have a system where people have more power and the corporations have less power and so on but you know, in the end, you're just going to take us in the direction of China. So that's, you know, I, I just, I just, I, I really want government to keep, you know, I, I'm really hoping that there'll be gridlock uh, when, right. when the proposals come through to try to regulate tech. When you think about sort of the rise of what a quote unquote wokeness or, or what people talk about, the, you know, Jonathan Hay talks about the problems of, of, you know, college campuses of what's happened to Brett Weinstein of, of that sort, like sort of disintegration of, I don't know. Uh, like when you think about what's what's going on on the left um, there, what is sort of the crux, in your opinion, of of what led to that and what's happening? Yeah, well, that, that that's a huge concern of mine. Uh, I have to say, I think you know, I'm of a generation, you know, 65 years old that uh, just doesn't buy into any of this current left stuff, and you know, I'll I use the term. That you know, it's not my term, but I've seen it elsewhere. Cry bullies. These people are crying. Oh, you're hurting my feelings, and they're bullies. And we're going to make you shut up. And and both of those reactions, I I find very disturbing. So, and and it seems that there are people that the people who are most concerned about it are people fifty years old and older. And and what happens when they age out of the the system? and a lot of what concerns me is that you know this is deeply embedded in the leading academic institutions and from there it it kind of seeps out into journalism it seeps out into the human resources departments of corporations like google and it seeps into the politics of the democratic party and just it's it's sort of horrid ideas backed by authoritarian methods is is the way is the way it comes across to me and so it's 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 a big concern 
some conservatives are on the wrong track in sort of thinking that, well, we'll fight this with Donald Trump. I think we have to fight it more. You know, the battlefield is really, you know, at these, the leading institutions, the leading media and the, the leading education, you know, higher educational institutions. I, by the way, another place it seeps into is in K-12 education where, I mean, I, I mean, kids are being brainwashed right and left with this, with this stuff, you know, the, the, the gender fluidity, you know, gender flavor of the month stuff and so on. And all of the, uh, you know, America has this awful history of oppression and stuff that that's all being driven into school kids now. So yeah, and I'll, 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 Put on my you know, sort of right wing hat and say, yeah, I'm very concerned about that. And I think you know we have to battle it. You know, maybe in three dimensions, um, we have to have an alternative viewpoints like the intellectual dark web, uh, which is sort of the equivalent of the, what Samizdat was uh, under the uh, Soviet totalitarianism. I think we need to try to fight within the academy the way Jonathan Haidt wants to with, you know, heterodox academy, try to bring back the better values. Uh, you know, again, Stephen Pinker talking about enlightenment being good. I mean, I, I don't know whether Pinker and Haidt are just fighting a losing battle or whether they have a chance, but it'd be nice. And then the third is just find a way to devalue the status of Harvard and the New York Times and come up with some other source of elite thinking that uh, isn't as messed up. I, I want to put this argument that someone, someone made who believes something similar and, and, and see what you think to it. Basically the way he thinks this is all going to play out <laughs> is uh, Trump is either going to win or not win, but regardless next time we're going to have an AOC like, you know, Trump of the left. And that's when things are going to go really haywire <laughs> and the fall of the, of the Republic is, is going to begin and that the way that we now see, you know, are nostalgic for George Bush or that many are nostalgic for George Bush, uh, soon people will be nostalgic for Trump because after uh, the AOC-like person wins, then there will be sort of a dictator on the right, or Putin-like character that, that then comes to power. And this is how America loses. <laughs> how do you respond to, to this, uh, this take and how do you think it plays out? Well, it does seem that the pattern is for each party to to increasingly nominate a candidate who seems very threatening and to the other party party and probably you know makes centrists very nervous that that seems like an odd pattern to continue i mean if you extrapolate that pattern yeah the country does fall apart you get an extreme left winger a crazy you know, you get a crazy Democrat followed by a crazy Republican followed by a crazy Democrat. I'm not sure I would extrapolate that pattern. It just, uh, you know, at some point the center may exert influence. It doesn't look that way now, but uh, and you know, there's there's certainly a a Martin Gurry type analysis would say that the center is is pretty weak right now. But uh, let, let's I I wouldn't extrapolate this sort of ping pong extremism out for more than a, you know one more election or two more elections yeah. if that far i know you've been a, a famous uh or outspoken crypto bear i'm, I'm i want to 
bring three arguments on why crypto might be interesting, why, why you might be interested in it, and see how you'd respond to, to, to all three of them. So, so the first is uh, that there is there is a need for, or that there will be interest in a non-sovereign digital form of money, digital gold, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and that while gold will have uh, so, always have some advantages, namely it's been around for a long time, um, that uh, digital digital gold will also have some value advantages, namely it's you know more transferable, portable, you know uh, fungible, and that there will be a need for that, and and Bitcoin will serve that need, uh, and that Bitcoin has sort of some power on its own. That money is a is an illusion or, or the bubble that never pops. That Bitcoin has because it has sort of a Jesus like rise rise um, and and figure and such a passionate tribal community around it that it will retain uh, value over time, and, and that at minimum it can try to serve the use case that that gold has served over over time. Uh, you know, st- store value. That, that's one argument. The, the second argument is that what crypto enables or crypto networks enable is sort of the rise of, of co-ops at scale. And the ability for uh, and why co-ops have been interesting is because they, um, they, they brought in economic ownership, uh, not just to uh, founders or employees, but also to customers and you know, better align incentives in, 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 um, in a market-based way. And that crypto networks uh, bring fundraising mechanisms, namely what Ethereum was doing with the ICOs, to co-ops. And then the thing that's been holding co-ops back is uh, their ability to scale and, and raise money the way traditional companies have. And the third argument is that uh, crypto, um, and your, your perception here is that um, crypto enables sort of uh, empirical macro and, and poli-sci, or that it sort of leans, you know, all these thousands of currencies, they're all experiments. And it allows us to experiment with different economic and political governance systems and, and beliefs in ways that we haven't been able to before. What are your thoughts on those three arguments? Okay, so crypto, you know, Bitcoin is money. The virtue of money, virtues of money are, you know, it's, it's generally accepted for transactions. Well, well, Bitcoin is gold. Bitcoin is gold, not, not, okay. not cash. Okay, I think gold's a relatively small market. The gold market is very unimportant. What's the price of gold today? I don't even know. You know, yeah, it's, 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 it's still worth trillions, of, you know, trillions of dollars in a way that would make Bitcoin a good investment today. You know, ten X or uh, I mean, I, I mean, the price of gold is not significant to today's economy, and the price of Bitcoin is not significant to today's economy. I mean, if people want, but you know, there there are plenty of people who speculate in gold. There are plenty of people who, you know, advertise, you know, buy your gold here. I mean, it's, you know, it's an active market. It's just not very important. And that, that if, if Bitcoin, you know, is on that same level as the, you know, the market for gold, you know, it, it can do that. It just doesn't matter. Okay. I mean, so yeah. what about the, the co-op and the experiment? argument? I, I, I think in general, every use case I've seen for blockchain is a case where the problem exists, but the solution is cultural. You know, blockchain is neither necessary nor sufficient to solve the problem. The, the, the example I'm most familiar with is property title. We have a ridiculous property title system in this country, uh, which you know actually played a big role in the financial crisis when the foreclosure, you know, people, you know, the, the foreclosure process was just ugly. And it's because you have these literally pieces of paper sitting in county recording offices 
that you know include mortgage notes and so on and just it's just ugly and expensive when you buy a house you have to pay significant money for something called a title search and title insurance which is basically paying somebody to say well even if i did the title search wrong i'll i'll compensate you for it it's just complete disaster people have correctly said that you could use blockchain to record titles and changes of titles and would be really solidly effective. But you don't need blockchain to do that. Way before I'd ever heard of blockchain, I did some you know, testimony in front of Congress and I just threw out, I don't know why, why this was a topic, but I threw out that, you know, we, we should switch to a different titling system. And I explained, you know, what kind of a, a more sensible titling system told that they that an exchange took place subsequently between the uh, lobbyists for the American Title Association, which of course what makes the money out of this title insurance stuff, uh, and the congressman, the, the lobbyist said, yeah, hey, are you really going to change the title system? The congressman said, oh, no, no, no don't worry. We're, 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 this is, we're not going to touch that. And that's what's preventing blockchain from being used in title systems you know, it's the culture and the lobbyists and all that stuff. And my guess is that if you really delve into the problem that co-ops are having, it's cultural and institutional and legal. And uh, if you solve those problems, you don't need blockchain. If you don't solve those problems, blockchain won't help you. And then the experimental one, in terms of uh, there's ways to test out economic theories. Right now, we we don't have you know, controlled experiments or labs to test out a lot of. Yeah, I guess I just don't see that. So totally, <laughs> I'm not converted. That's okay. <laughs> yeah. You know, I want to go back to inequality for for a second and and ask you about what your views are on an idea of an inheritance tax or uh, and basically this idea of you know should there, certainly there shouldn't be equality of outcome, but to what extent should there be equality of opportunity? And that sort of goes up against the idea of you know, you worked hard, you should be able to pay for your kids versus, you know, that goes directly against everyone should have equal uh, opportunity, your kids' education and, and advantage. What are your thoughts there? Yeah. Uh, no, I'm not a fan of, of inheritance taxes. I think we should think of taxes not in terms of their distributional effects, but their incentive effects. And a lot of what we tax is things that we ought to like. We tax labor through our payroll tax. We tax thrift with our with capital tax. You're basically taxing, taxing thrift and risk-taking. So taxing work and thrift and risk-taking is, you know, I'm not a fan of that. And I think when you do inheritance taxing, you're basically taxing the thrift and risk-taking of the people who accumulate assets. I mean, if if you told me tomorrow that you were going to, you know, sort of wipe out anything I could give to my kids, I would just search as hard as I could for ways to give it to them now, you know, invest in them in some way. It might sound good to some people, but I'm not a fan. You should think about what it is you want to incentivize versus not incentivize. The goal of creating, of making things equal for a rich person's kids or a poor person's kids, I, it, it's not realistic. I mean, rich people are going to want their kids to do well. Yeah. 
you know, and you're just going to distort behavior in various ways. But imagine instead that, you know, your taxes were entirely on uh, consumer spending. So if I give a big inheritance to my kids, it's up to them how they use that. If they use it to invest in physical capital or their own human capital, they don't get pay much taxes if they splurge and spend and spend it on wine women and song then it'll be taxed away very quickly so i would think in terms of you know what activities are you taxing not who you're taxing or how much wealth they have well you, you wrote a post uh, last year about you find minerva somewhat interesting uh, you know, a new university venture back, but somewhat uh, your private, but somewhat disappointing in that it's it's top down, centrally planned. And I guess I'm curious for what's your sort of ideal. You could wave a wand and change anything about how we do education. What might that look like? The first phrase that comes to mind is controlled experiments. You know, when I, I whenever I've talked about controlled experiments with people, you know, you know, randomized control trials. You know, whenever I talk about that with people in the field of education, they go, "Ah, oh, what a horrible idea! You're experimenting with people's children." And I go, "Oh gosh, you do it all the time. They tamper with curriculum. They tamper with teaching methods, but they don't." track results they don't they just make changes without having any plan or methodology for deciding whether whether they did actually worked so randomized control trials is what comes to mind there there's this book uh non-zero by robert wright It, it talks about how basically the thesis of the book is that over time humans become more interdependent basically because of markets, because of language in, in a way that we are now in non-zero sum games. It's either win-win or, or lose-lose as opposed to in the past, it was win-lose or, or what wasn't affected. Uh, to the extent that we buy that thesis uh, that um, you know, our fates become more and more inter- in, in, intertwined because technology brings us closer together for, for better and for worse. Uh, I'm curious what that, what the implications of, of that are. In, in one post, you, you had this line, which sounds somewhat similar. It, it said, how can we sustain an ethic of individual responsibility while also enjoying the benefits of extreme interdependence? Yeah, well, I, I think we've alluded to the, this earlier, that we, you know, we want a sense of community, of explicitly caring for each other and of having personal interactions. And yet, the market capitalist system, the benefits of that come from the impersonal interactions and the extreme interdependence on people we don't know. So just about everything that you consume was probably touched in some way by millions of people that you don't know in order to, you know, to, to get it to you. So there's, there's this extreme interdependence, yet at the same time we want this sense of community. And that those that's... That's a real challenge. In terms of you know, zero, non-zero, I, I still think status is basically a zero-sum game. And uh, to the extent that people care about status, you know, that there, there's going to be competition and tension and all sorts of, of, of issues there. I mean, one of the advantages of you know, market transactions is that they're, they tend, they're positive sum. You, know, you get something that you want, I get something I want. But uh, status may not work that way. There's, there's this uh, you know, belief that uh, you know, 
popularized by Rune Adrian Art and others that it's mimesis and, and similarities that, that drive status and that the more different we are, the more we can escape those, those status comp- competitions or, or we can all win or uh, be less comparing ourselves to others and, and in small groups and in big groups where, where when, you know, it manifests as identity politics and, and nationalism and tribalism. Does, does that resonate with you? The, the need for I, I, I would really like there to be a case where there are, you know, sort of many, many different competitions and you can decide which ones you care about rather than everybody, than a whole bunch of people coalescing around the, the competition for, let's say, political power. You, know, you wrote a book a decade ago called Crisis of Abundance. Um, you know, think about how we pay for health care, which, which chronicled the, the problems as well as some proposed solutions. And recently you reflected that the problems haven't really changed that much, but that the solutions uh, or some of the solutions were, were likely uh, impractical or not likely to work. Can you re- reflect on that and, and where we are with healthcare? Like, why are there no markets? And if you could wave a wand, what, what would happen? Okay, so you know, the basic problem is that as individuals, we would like unlimited access to medical services without having to pay for them. But you know, collectively as a society, if you to enable people to do that, you'd have to spend huge amounts on healthcare, uh, and then we get upset that we spend so much. If I could wave a wand, it would be to somehow empower individuals to understand medical treatment and medical testing in term, in probabilistic terms you know i mean you know doctors don't understand probability very well either so but you, to get all the decision makers to understand probability because right now you know, you know the doctor just says you go for an mri you take this medication and the communication instead ought to be, well, you know, if you go for an MRI, there's this probability that we'll find this. And then conditional on that, there's this probability that this treatment will have this. I think if people understood that, they would, you know, it would, it would be a whole different approach. I mean, I, I, I can see why people don't, would be very uncomfortable with that. People want the certainty of the doc, you know, the doctor told me to do this and now I know I'm doing it. I mean, that, that, that in itself is very comforting to people. But if, if I could wave a wand, it would make people comfortable with and able to make calculations using probability. Cause I think they would, they would, there would be a lot less medical intervention and the medical intervention that, that would remain would be, a lot more sensible. So I want to play sort of a rapid fire game where uh, it's uh, yeah. If you, if you could wave a wand, what would you change? And, and you've answered a few: healthcare, education. What would your your answer to uh, tax code be? I, 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 we've, we've said it before. May focus on you know do less taxing of activities that we like, like work and so on. Uh, you know, get rid of the payroll tax, for example, and just you know do more taxing on consumer spending. Uh, the political process. If I could wave a magic wand, it would enable people to more easily secede into smaller units and to sort of to break out of states, to break away from, you know, to form smaller units of government uh, and to unbundle the services of government. The patent system. Somehow align the patent rewards or prize rewards or whatever kind of rewards you give to innovators uh, relative to the degree of difficulty and risk of 
coming up with the innovation and implementing the innovation. You know, some things are very difficult to come up with and implement. Some things are very easy, and I don't think we differentiate in any way. Uh, attempts to address poverty or, or inequality, is, would UBI be your answer? Yeah, I mean, I, I understand the flaws and arguments against the universal basic income, but I think it's, you know, those flaws are shared by all our existing approaches and their existing approaches in addition have the problem of being of being very corrupting. And, and do you mean uh, means testing or you, you and I and Bill Gates get money too? Yeah, no, every, that, that's the, that's just the mechanics of how it works. Everyone gets the money, and then we pay taxes on what we earn over above that. So Bill Gates will pay taxes on his earnings. Somebody who is incapable of earning anything will not pay those taxes, and that'll be the difference between us. At some point, Bill Gates's taxes—in fact, you know, very early on—his taxes will exceed what he. Is, pay, is paid out in his universal basic income, so he'll be a net taxpayer. Other people will be a net tax receivers. And when you going back to tax for a second, when you think about like you know, income tax and wealth tax and capital gains, do you think in your, in your ideal world would we be paying significantly less in taxes than we do now? Um, in my ideal world, the government would be spending a lot less than it does now, and that yeah, so you would so overall taxes would be lower. Do you have a view on capital gains? Yeah, I, th- I think all forms of capital taxation are, are bad ideas. They just they tax thrift and they tax risk-taking, and we shouldn't do that. So, so the last segment of the interview is I'm going to uh, share some people you know and are familiar with their ideas and ask you, where, although you agree with them in a bunch of areas, where is one place where you disagree? And I'll start first with, uh, with Tyler Cowen. Well, I think he is way more optimistic and positive about the economics profession than I am. So he's somewhat he's he's comes across as a cheerleader for lots of young economists and what they're doing, and you know their their methods in some ways are better and than than the methods that were being taught in my day. I mean, there's no question. I, I would rather learn what the young economists are learning than learn what I learned. But uh, overall, I, I, I'm pretty pessimistic about the profession. I think it's on what I call the road to sociology, where it, it investigates fewer and fewer questions other than those that are on a very left-wing agenda. George Gilder. George Gilder is... I think of him as a romantic. You know, when 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 he sees a technology that he thinks is cool, he falls in love with it. I'm actually that same type of romantic, but I think I'm only about eighty percent as romantic as he is. So, so if if it's a disagreement, I just uh, uh, it's in terms of the intensity of the love for new to cool technology. I'm, I'm I'm less intense. Peter Thiel. I already talked about the economic slowdown. But another view Peter Thiel has is that he sees sort of globalization as horizontal progress um, and in some ways is just, you know, developing nations copying what developed worlds is doing. And he, he sees that as a threat in some sense to innovation, which he sees as vertical uh, progress, you know, zero to one I- innovation. I'm curious, what, what do you think about that view and any other disagreements with Peter Thiel? I hadn't heard that one before, so I won't, I won't respond to it now. I want to think about it. You know, my, one way I, I disagree with Peter Thiel is maybe 
trying to you know attempt seasteading or things like that that you know again i I don't think you can start from scratch i think you have to start from where we are and and try to change things i really like the idea of the teal fellowship by the way of sort of creating a um you know sort of a high status way to not do college totally the and i think he had an opportunity to really create uh, he thought about creating his own university but that he feared that he would just be doing the, the same as everybody else basically yeah Nassim Taleb I'd say options are just options you know he sort of makes it sound like well you know if you own you know if you own an if you're long options then uh you know you're you'll do great and uh my view is that we, you have to be more uh, nuanced than that. So it's just sort of, I think he over, overrates, he, he just goes overboard on the value of optionality. Uh, what, what about Brian Kaplan? Well, you know, we talked about, I talked about this sort of reason versus tradition uh, stuff, and I see him as being extreme on the reason side. I mean, if he could wake up tomorrow and get rid of any tradition that he he thinks is stupid, he would do it. And, you know, just no respect for tradition at all, whereas I have a lot of respect for tradition. So that, that, that's my perception. Piketty, Thomas Piketty. You know, I didn't read the book. I, I just think he, you know, started from a, an ideological conclusion and worked backwards is kind of the, my, my opinion. The uh, and I know you really didn't like this book, Radical Markets, uh, and specifically Glenn Wild. And I'm, I'm curious to focus on two ideas in particular. One is the the notion of private property, and, and his proposal is harbinger uh, taxes. And then the other was a quadratic voting um, as a way of improving democratic process. I'm curious about your your belief in those yeah, two. Ideas. I, the whole style of you know let let's do something completely new and different because I have reasoned it out and figured out how it's going to be better. That whole approach is just contrary to my approach. Again, start from what it is and incrementally work your way in the direction that you think will help. Uh, grope your way. Don't just don't come up with radical policy proposals. I, I, I just I don't like that style at all. Yep, Robin Hanson. I've never agreed with his view that you know we're going to come up with a you know a computer simulation the perfect replica of a human brain in a computer you know he he thinks we're going to do it and it's going to be really important it's going to change the world he's written, i think he's written an entire book about it and he's never convinced me that it's going to happen we, we spent a whole lunch kind of arguing back and forth about that i just i think you know the the human system is that includes the body is just way more complex and interrelated than just you know that's something you can just download from a brain to a computer. I have, uh, I have one more, but I wanted to ask you, which modern day thinkers are you most uh, either inspired by or most eager to, you know, really download their worldview that I, that I haven't mentioned? Uh, Joseph Henrich, uh, the sort of, I guess the cultural anthropologist or whatever he is. He, that, 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 that's an example of someone who comes to mind. And then what is, what has he contributed um, the notion of cultural intelligence that humans as individuals, you know, you come into the world stupid. And, you know, if you were deposited into a different 
environment, let's say you were, you know, put into the jungle or whatever, you'd be hopeless. I mean, you, even if you had your iPhone and, and there was, you know, there was an internet connection, you wouldn't know how to get food or how to prepare food or what's poisonous or whatever. So we come into the world stupid and then we uh, absorb all this culture and that's what makes us in- intelligent. I thought it's, it's a very profound view. And so, uh, and, you know, he's done some other things too. He, he was one of the people who really anticipated the issues with the replication crisis, what, what we call the replication crisis. So he's, he's a big deal. Given that the replication crisis exists, what should we do with some of these fields? Like, should they just be downplayed in, in importance or should they go away altogether or should they start from square one and try to rebuild? Or? Um, I'd say try, try to rebuild. You know, I alluded to you know, Tyler Cowen being a cheerleader for new economic methods. Some of these new economic methods involve finding very specific situations that you could call, you could say, aha, something happened that generated what amounts to a controlled experiment. And then they try to generalize the result from that weird situation in some, some specific culture and say, well, now we know that labor supply reacts like this to, to that. So I, I think research methods in what are called the social sciences and what I would refer prefer just called the disciplines that study human behavior. I'd, I'd like to leave the word science out of it. I mean, the research methods are a real challenge, and I think we just have to keep working really hard at examining methods and questioning methods and uh, hopefully filtering out over time the, the stuff that, that turns out not to be durable and keeping the, uh, the stuff that, that's verifiable. Yeah. You know, Eric Weinstein has, has written and talked about how he spent a lot of time in academia and suffered from groupthink and, and, and then left to join the VC world. You seem to be an independent researcher and, and because you were a successful entrepreneur, but are there negative senses plaguing academics to do things that are, you know, sort of confirmation bias or to pursue, like, how would you reform academia? <laughs> wow. In terms of the research process, I think that's another case where the government funding is corrupting because you know it's all about getting a government grant and that means you have to sort of you know suck up to the right people either directly or indirectly and uh it creates you know power centers and groupthink and all the rest so uh, my first thought is to sort of you know reduce the role of government and increase the role of either sort of people doing unfunded research or getting their funding from prize funds or from, you know, maybe private foundations. But you know, if, if there's too much, I mean, private foundation money can be corrupting too. So, but anyway, that, that, that that's my concern there is that if, if, if government plays too big a role, then the people who control the purse strings, you know, the, the, the scientists who are, or the people who are at the National Science Foundation or the uh, National Institutes of Health or whatever, just develop too much power and that outsiders ha- have too little chance. Go, going back to your cultural evolution point for a second, um, are you at risk of simplifying? Are you more in the camp of Hobbes' uh, state, uh, you know, natural state of war versus Rousseau's no, no idea of noble savage? 
Oh yeah. Wait. Uh, yeah. There's no, yeah, no, I think civilization is a, an amazing thing. And yeah, you take away civilization, you, 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 you move, you, you remove people from their traditions and their habits and you, you end up with Lord of the Flies. Yeah. yeah. So we were born into violence and educated out of it rather than the opposite. Yeah. And would you say that view is uh, pretty definitive at this point, uh, definitively accepted, or is there still open question or it's unanswerable question? I think it's a, it's a, it's a major dividing line between conservatives and the left. I mean, uh, you know, I mean, I, I, I hear myself in this interview as coming across as very conservative and it's probably true. Uh, and somebody on the left would say, Oh, people are naturally great. It's, it's these systems that get imposed on them, like, you know, the patriarchy and capitalism that, that sort of make people bad. People would be great if we could, you know, take off the, these, get rid of these, you know, these horrible institutions. So I think that's a, that's a classic left, right division. Yeah. And religions served, I think more on the right in terms of like, or certainly the idea of original sin. Do you see religions gaining in prominence in the future or, or decreasing? I'm, I'm one of those people who thinks that there is a need there are personal needs that were served by religion that might be served in other ways and could be served in dangerous ways. You know, like people could take their politics and turn it into a religion and start to excommunicate people who disagree with them and so on. I I, I don't think we're going to go back to earlier religions. I, I think of that as like trying to squeeze toothpaste back into a tube. I think people have, you know, have become disenchanted in the technical term, that is, they're just not, you know, once you've reasoned, you know, reasoned your way past some of the things that religion has, you're not going to go back to it. The, you know, it's interesting, you know, religion, the micro benefits, I think are, you know, unbundled and, and, you know, replaced by things like CrossFit and SoulCycle and <laughs> lots of different types of, you know, market solutions. But the macro, Eric Weinstein has talked about, you know, we don't have communal, uh, sense-making institutions anymore. Um, you know, people are getting personalized information, personalized everything, and we don't have common narratives that we all abide by and religion used to really serve that both the origin narrative and, and the future narrative. Yeah, that's a, that's a valid point. And that, you know, that, that, that's an example of a need that religion served that people are going to look to other things for and the other things may be worse. Yeah, I wonder what fills that, uh, fills that vacuum. Yeah, um, yeah. The uh, well, fittingly, as a last person, uh, uh, Russ Roberts. I think I have a hard time coming up with something that I fundamentally disagree with him about. I think we've influenced each other in some ways, so that you know, if if he started out at one place, I moved him, and if I started out at one place, he moved me. So there's not much left to disagree with fundamentally. Hard to think, come up with them, something. Well, I've listened to perhaps all ten of your uh, your 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 guys' episodes, so I'm I'm grateful for for that over the years. Uh, and in fit, you know, uh, uh, appropriately honoring uh, Russ, my guest today has been uh, Arnold Kling. Uh, thank you for uh, for a great episode. Okay, thank you, Eric. You're you're a very uh, thorough interviewer. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst.